morning, everyone. Um, <clears throat> last time I was here, I'd had a couple of months to prepare. Today, I've only had a week, so we'll see how it goes. So we bow our heads and just ask the Lord for his blessing. Lord, I uh, thank you for the opportunity for us all to gather here today in your holy name. And I just ask that you channel your message through me, that uh, people may understand what a wondrous holy God you are and how you continue to work in miraculous ways in our life. And as we leave here, we just hope that we have a better understanding of our relationship with you and everyone and the world that you've created around us. We ask this all in your holy name. Amen. So when I stand here, you know what's going to happen, right? I like to spout off a fact or two. And I have one. Did you know today, the 13th of August, is International Left-Handed Day? <laughs> now, only 10% of the world are left-handed. And yet these guys get a lot of bad press. And now in modern times, we know that lefties are normal folk. But history wasn't always so kind to our left-handed friends. In the Middle Ages, being a lefty was enough to get you called a witch. In the 18th and 19th centuries, left-handed children were forced to use their right hand in schools. I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried eating the other way around, but it's kind of dreadful. And if you're sitting next to that person, it's even worse. I mean, these biases even persisted well into the 20th century. In the 70s, the Soviet bloc had official policies against being left-handed. Kind of strict, but anyway. Now, you might ask yourself, why am I telling you about left-handed people? Well, the last time I was here, I was talking to you about being different, being an exile in the modern world. So maybe what I was saying is, try and live your life as a lefty in a right-handed and today, I want to continue on from where we left off in our journey of uh, 1 Peter. Now, 1 Peter is really just a letter that Peter wrote to Christians in what is believed to be modern Turkey. The people there were facing persecution for their faith. And Peter was writing to encourage them and to instruct them on how to live and how to stand strong in the midst of their suffering. If you remember, at the end of that first chapter of Peter, he tells them that they have been born again through the living and enduring word of God. And in chapter 2, he's going to continue that thought. So let's read through the text and then we'll explore what Peter was trying to tell us. And it says, Therefore, rid yourself of all malice, and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So I've mentioned before that the Bible is many things. It's a greatest love story ever written. It's an adventure novel. It's a historical book. But it's also an instruction manual. And today we're going to see that in this instructional how to live like a Christian letter, that Peter is going to tell everyone to do three things. Things which I hope that you will take away from today's message. And these three things are to clean up, to fill up, and to come to Jesus. The passage starts by saying, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Now, aside from needing a dictionary to maybe explain all of those, we also know that every word that is placed in the Bible is intentional. It's not there by accident. It doesn't matter who wrote what book. It's there because God wanted it in the Bible. And the word therefore kicks us off. And why is therefore there? Well, it's because it connects what came before with what's going to happen. And here Peter is saying to the exiles at that time and to us now, you've been born again. Therefore, live like it. Specifically, he wants us to do things, two things, right away. And the first thing is to clean up our act. Clean up. Rid yourselves of all the bad, all the malice and the deceit and the hypocrisy and the envy and the slander. The words rid yourselves that are there are actually translated from Greek words that were used when they were talking about people stripping off dirty clothes. Now, I don't know if any of you have a, have a wife or a husband like me, but um, she likes to go into the garden and do DIY things. And often a relaxing Saturday morning is changed into one which is full of dirt and dust and grime and garden muck. And although the results are always pleasing and they're very much worth it, at the end of the day, they can leave you covered in dirt. And dust, and there's nothing better than when you're covered in all that dirt and dust, just <coughs> stripping off your sweaty clothes and your socks and shoes and jumping into a hot cleansing shower. And then you jump into your nice clean pajamas and you feel like a brand new person. And that's the picture 
that we're talking about here. Not about our clothes, but when we're saying clean up, we're talking about our old thoughts and our words and actions and habits. The ones that are full of malice and deceit and hypocrisy. Strip it all off. Get rid of it. And this image of stripping things away and cleaning up is used in other places in the Bible as well, not just here. For instance, in James 1, uh, verse 21, it says, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Get rid. It's the same word. Strip off all the moral filth and evil. Clean up. And in Ephesians 4, it, uh, verses 22 to 24, it says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of our minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The message here is the same. Put off the old. Put on the new. Strip off what's evil. Did you know that in the first few centuries of the church, people who were baptismal candidates had to shed their old clothes and get baptized in the nude. And then they were given new clothes. All kind of symbolic of shedding what had come before. This total change in our life. So Peter's telling us, our very first instruction, clean up our act. And then the second task he wants us to do is to fill up. In verse 2, it says, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now some translations, if you look at them, instead of saying crave the pure spiritual milk, it says crave the pure milk of the word. And the word spiritual is translated from the Greek word logikos, which in turn comes from the word logos or logos, not sure how to pronounce it. And it means reason or word. So it could mean reasonable or spiritual or of the word. And because of Peter's reference to it here, we see that what he's actually referencing is the word of God. He wants us to crave the spiritual milk, the pure word of God, just like a newborn baby would. Now, Tammy and I are expecting, so we're not quite there yet, but I'm pretty sure that in a couple of months I'll understand what craving milk will be like when I watch that baby wriggling around. But my question to you is, are any of you doing that? Are you craving God's word, God's word like a, a newborn baby would? Sometimes I don't think we all do. I know I certainly don't. And we have to think, why not? And there's a couple of possibilities. I mean, if I think about it, as a teenager, I remember when I was hungry and I was filling up on junk food. I wasn't going to be hungry for any of my mom's salads or the fruit that was in the bowl on the table. All the good stuff. I was only there for the junk food. If you're trying to satisfy our spiritual hunger, 
with the junk food of life, I don't think we're going to be hungry or as hungry as we could be for God's word. So maybe what we need to be doing is thinking about what is that junk in our life that prevents us from craving the pure spiritual milk of God's word? Are we filling the void in our tummy with junk? If we look at verse 3 where it says, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, it perhaps gives us another reason why we may not be craving the word. And that's because we have to develop a taste for it. When you develop a taste for something, that's when you crave more. Think a nice piece of biltong ray that you're no longer allowed to have. Or uh, Tammy's chocolate cake that waits for us on the first of every month. I certainly know that once I've tasted that, all I want is more. So my question to you in this point is, have you tasted God's goodness? Have you developed a taste for his word? Taste it. I urge you. And I guarantee you'll see that you'll crave the pure spiritual milk of the word. Do it through Bible studies. Do it through quiet time every day. We have to develop a habit of giving God a chance to allow us to taste his word and see that it is good. And finally, when we have tasted it and we notice that we're filling up on this word, we'll grow in our salvation. That's what it says there. What does that mean? Well, it means God wants us to grow in our knowledge of him, our experience with him. He wants us to grow closer to him each and every day. We can't follow Jesus and stay where we started. Following someone implies movement. It implies change. It implies growth. So I ask you, are you growing? Are you moving? Are you following him? Are you growing in your knowledge of God? Don't settle for where you are right now. If you're not growing, if you're not moving, it's time to clean up and fill up. And then, after we've cleaned up and we've filled up, Peter has one more instruction for us. And I think that this one is the one that's key to us all. And it's the one that will change our life the most. And that is, come to Jesus. Now these words, he says it there in verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. Those words, as you come to him. Think about it. We don't just come to Jesus once. We have to do it again and again. And this isn't a unique experience in our life. We don't just go to work or to school or to the gym once and then say, that's it, I'm done. You know, we have to keep going back so that we can earn a living, so that we can gain knowledge, so that we can stay healthy. I mean, imagine after the first day of, of marriage, if I'd gone home to Tammy and said, I know how to husband. I don't think uh, she's ever thought that in our almost 10 years of marriage that I know how to husband. But uh, it's the same thing. We need to keep coming to Jesus every day, over and over. Every time we open the word, 
we have to come to Jesus. Every time we pray, we are coming to Jesus. Every time we listen for the Spirit to lead us, we come to Jesus. And every time we come to church, we come to Jesus. And as we keep coming to Him, what happens? Well, it says so in the next few lines. We are built together into a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. And we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. I mean, it looks like it could be fairly clear, but what does it really mean? Well, I had to think about this and I came up with a sports analogy. I don't know if you've realized this, but Christianity is the ultimate team sport. We can't do it alone. We have to do it together. In the Old Testament, the temple or the spiritual house that they're talking about there, that we're built together in, was a place where God's presence was known. If you wanted to meet God, you went to the temple. And the, the priest interceded for you. After Jesus came, he said he was the temple. And if you wanted to meet God, you had to come to Jesus. And now, after his sacrifice, we are the temple. If you want to meet God, he's in our midst. If you don't believe me, the Bible tells us. In Matthew 18.20 it says, Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. The temple is not a place. It's a people. God doesn't live in this building. He lives amongst us. We're the team. Peter says in his letter that Jesus is the living stone, the cornerstone on which the temple is built. So he's our foundation. As we come to him, we become living stones. That's what Peter's instruction was. And these living stones are being built together into this temple, this place where we can meet God. No one can do it alone. Church is our family and our sanctuary, all rolled into one. And we can think that it's only us who realize this because we come to church whenever we do. And so we know. But even out there in the world at large where we may think that it doesn't affect people, you find little inklings that people realize it even if they haven't acknowledged it. In the 90s, there was a song called God is a DJ. It's a bit frivolous of a title. It's an electronic music song. But the lyrics, if I read them to you from the first verse, just listen to this with a different sort of perspective. This is my church. This is where I heal my hurts. It's in natural grace or watching young life shape. It's in minor keys, solutions, and remedies, enemies becoming friends, where bitterness ends. This is my church. Sounds like entertainment when there's a beat behind it, but if you take it away, I reckon he knew what he was talking about. Jesus has made us into a temple. This is where we're going to find God. And none of those things are possible by ourselves. Now in the next four verses... Peter quotes some Old Testament scripture about Jesus, the living stone. It says, for in scripture it says, 
See, we lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Now, if you read through the Bible, Jesus quoted some of those same verses about himself as he claimed to be the cornerstone, the one the builders had rejected, and the rock that causes people to stumble and fall. Because he was telling us he is the cornerstone upon which the whole temple of God has been built and on which it depends. We either come to Jesus or we reject him. We either come to Jesus that has been built into God's temple or we reject Jesus and we stumble and we fall because of him. He's either precious to us or he's rejected by us. But Jesus is what this all revolves on. And Peter continues this thought as he carries on his writing. He says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. So now we're finding out not only are we the temple, but we're also a priesthood. The role of a priest in the past was to be a bridge between people and God. Priests offered sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. And yet here we are being described as part of the priesthood. If we're part of the priesthood, can you think of any sacrifices that we can offer? I mean, I'm not talking about running out and slaughtering a lamb or roasting a chicken. Uh, Can you think? Peter actually tells us, still in this verse, he says, if we look again at verse 9, he starts by saying to the recipients of this letter, he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. That's the sacrifice. Spiritual sacrifice that we offer is the sacrifice of praise to God. Now, if I say sacrifice and praise in the same sentence, you're all going to look at me a bit strangely because they don't seem to be the same thing. But actually, in this sense, it actually is. Because we're going to see that Sacrifice of praise is telling everyone around us what God has done for us. In Hebrews 13, verse 15, it says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Now, we think of uh, sacrifices something that's offered at a cost to ourselves. And praise, on the other hand, is something that is joyful and bubbles from a grateful heart. But in the spiritual realm, sacrifice and praise are intertwined. 
Praise doesn't always cost us something. Because we can praise our dogs for fetching a ball, or sitting, or being a good puppy, not chewing the, the, the veranda furniture. Praise is often a response to some action that directly benefits us, and we feel generous because we extend it to other people. We often find it easy to praise God from that same motivation. Praise God, he did something good. He saved us. He, we found the money that we needed. We can sing and we can worship and we can talk about how God is so good because we can see that. But this kind of praise, although worthwhile and pleasing to God, doesn't cost us anything. It's not sacrifice. Sacrifice of praise comes at those times when God hasn't done what we expected or in the way we expected or the news that we hear isn't what we want. Maybe that medical test that you've had hasn't come back with the results you wanted. Maybe your child is being naughty and wayward. Maybe the car's broken down. At those moments, God seems very far away. And praise is the last thing that, should, that we think will be coming out of our mouths. We can't see his goodness. And the circumstances scream that he's forgotten us. But if we praise God in those times, that requires an act of will. An act of laying ourselves before him and saying, okay, you're the one who can do this. And that is a sacrifice of praise. When he, we can believe that he's going to do something, even though we don't understand how, when we choose to believe that even though life is not going as we think it should, that God is still good and can still be trusted, that's our sacrifice of praise that we perform as the priesthood. And so as I close, I want you to think about this, that in this chapter, in this, these few verses, and all through the book of 1 Peter, Peter's concern is our behavior and how we present ourselves as born-again Christians. He wants us to live in such a way that others that we come into contact with will want to come to Jesus. We're all a walking billboard, a big advert for Jesus, for God, for our Christian life. And that's in a good way or a bad way. But I think we should all be trying to make it a good way by doing the three things that Peter's instructed us on how to do in these verses and in this passage. And those three things, clean up, fill up, and come to Jesus. Thank you.